We've been in the, in the book of Romans for eight chapters now, and Paul has spent a lot of time laying a foundation for the basics of the Christian faith. Uh, he's basically laid out the fact that man does not start off as naturally good. Man is utterly sinful from birth. He inherited, inherited that sin nature from Adam, his dad. You know, we think of our dad, we think of the guy that lives in the house that maybe went to work and provided, or the guy that we played baseball or Little League with. But in all reality, our, our father is Adam, and that's who we're all descendants of. We all have the same dad and mom that started the whole thing, Adam and Eve. And from that point on, it didn't get better. But man got more and more sinful as things went on. It's like a, a car. As it gets older, what happens is if it's got even a little spot of rust, that rust continues to corrupt the entire vehicle, but it might be under the surface, but it's still there. Corruption is a picture of rust. And so mankind has not gotten more and more smart. We've actually, in many ways, we've deteriorated. We've de-evolved, if you want to use that term. And it's all because of sin affecting not only our physical bodies, but the decisions that we make, our selfishness. Uh, the pain that we experience, all the things that happen to us in life start to show what we really are. I heard a man describe it this way, that the sun is one outside force that affects an object. But the object that's affected by it and its properties, its very nature, will show you what it is based on what the outward effects make a cause of it. And I'll put it more clearly, but that the sunshine is one outside force, Right? And if the sunshine is shining on a, on a frozen lake that is surrounded by dirt, the sunshine will take that ice as it warms up and it will melt it, proving that it's not anything but it's ice. It's ice, it melts. And as that coolness is removed from it or the heat's added to it, that ice becomes water, showing that it's not just any subject, but it's, it's ice. And in the same way, when you have frozen clay that's surrounding that same exact lake or river or pond, when the sun shines down on it, what happens? Well, it first melts and then all the water, the crystals that are in it kind of make it kind of soupy if you've ever played in the mud right after it snowed. But then what happens is that clay, as the water dries out of it, it doesn't melt, but it hardens. The same sun, two different objects, and their response to the sun show what those objects really are. And so that's what we're going to look at today in this passage in Romans chapter 9. Because in Romans chapter 9, Paul has just finished Romans chapter 8 where he's talked about the fact that as believers, there is nothing created in this life, nothing, absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of God which was shown to us in Christ Jesus. He goes through a list and he actually asks the question. He says, you know, what can separate us from the, the love of God? In verse uh, 31, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer, the short of it, is no one. Nothing can be against us. Nothing can stop us from being loved by God. And then he says there, he says, this is how we know that God loves us. In verse 32, he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up to death for us all. How do I know God loves me? He allowed his son to be put to death in your and I's place. I don't know what other kind of love you've ever seen in your life, but nothing 
amounts to that kind of love. Jesus himself said this, he said, greater love has no man than then he lay down his life, not just his, you know, his life, but his, he goes to death for his friends. And we see that in the, in the, we just celebrated Memorial Day last weekend. And on Monday, we, we have a holiday that celebrates people that were willing to go off to battle to some place in order for the good of other people. They fought in our place. And many of them, on Memorial Day, we celebrate not just the ones that are still with us that have the effects of war on them, but the ones that gave their very lives so that you and I could experience freedom. And in, in a much greater picture, we have Jesus Christ who not only went off to war, but he went to war against sin and death itself. He took on our sin, was put to death on the cross, and then he rose victoriously because you can't kill God. The power of God raised him from the dead. He had victory and he gave it to you and I if we'll receive his forgiveness through Jesus. Leviticus says that without the remission or the shedding of blood, Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission or forgiveness of sin. God can't just forgive without paying the price of the debt. He has to pay off our debt before he can forgive us. And he did that with his son. So that's how we know he loves us. But then he says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Verse 33, it is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns us or separates us from God? No one can because it's Christ who died and furthermore, he's also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? He prays for us. He desires God's will to be done in our lives and we learned a couple weeks ago that God's will for us is that we would be conformed or transformed into the image or the very likeness of his son. And so as we go through life, good stuff, bad stuff, Outside forces are against us, but the Lord is controlling it all. And all of those things that happen in our lives, they go through the very hand of God. He allows them to get to us in order that his will will be done. We will be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. They're meant to make us more like Jesus as believers. Now, there are many people that don't know Jesus. They don't have a relationship with him. And the bad things in this life that happen to them they're not under the protection of God. They're outside of it. But the Holy Spirit is always hounding them down saying, hey, if you just turn your life over to me, I can work all things together for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose. But many people continue to reject God saying, well, if God's a God of love, then why does he let this happen? Why does he allow this happen? But we know from a Christian perspective that even the the junk, the bad decisions that we make, that we deserve the consequences of, that God loves us enough to go, hey, I can use this for your good. I can change this. And though the stuff doesn't stop happening, he uses it in order to draw us to a relationship with him. And so God's showing us here that, you know, even the, the wickedness and the evil that happens in this life, he, he can use it for his purposes. He's greater than that stuff. So, Verse 37, he wrote this in chapter 8. He said, Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor evil, fallen angels, which is principalities, nor powers, nor things present, the things that are happening today, or the things that will come in the future, nor height, nor depth, 
nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of those things. And that's an all-inclusive phrase. He says, none. It means absolutely nothing can separate the Christian from the love of God. So then he transforms, he, he, he goes to chapter 9. Of course, he didn't write chapters in. That was something they did afterwards. But as he continues in, he kind of makes a, a transition. He's gotten to this mountaintop that nothing can separate the believer from the love of God. And he's just shouting it from the mountaintops. You can almost sense the excitement in Paul's life because he's not just telling us facts that we need to know. He's telling us something he's experienced and he wants everyone to know nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. I'm a living testament of that is what he's saying. And then in chapter 9, he starts to express his personal heart for the people from which he's come. And I think anyone who's been saved by the grace of God, who has a realistic view of where they came from, they have people that when they got saved, they left behind that are not saved. Now this is not a politically correct message to say that there's only one way to be saved. There's only one way to get to heaven. Many people talk about heaven. Many people say that they pray, but not many people have a personal relationship with Jesus that will actually, number one, get their prayers heard, and number two, get them to heaven where Jesus is. Not many people. We live in an area where more people talk about God and prayer and faith and all these things. They put it on their houses. They talk about it. They use these, these phrases, but not many of them actually know Jesus. And because of that, there will be many on that day that say, Lord, Lord, did not I cast out demons and do all these good things in your name? And he's going to say to them, Jesus saying these words said, I'm going to say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. The one thing that it's a relationship with Jesus. And then there will be many who will get there and he'll say, enter into the joy of your Lord. So what's the difference? It's a relationship with God that saves us. It's not anything we can add to that. And I love that because there are some days where I'm on fire and I'm doing all kinds of good stuff. But then there's that one moment within that same day where I get upset or I do something sinful. And I love the fact that the Lord continues to look down on me and he shows me grace because all those sins, even the ones I just did, were forgiven by God. All I have to come to him is repent. And so he transitions into chapter 9. He says, He's talking about this group of people that he's been saved from. He says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and I have continual grief in my heart. He's gone from this highest, highest of the highs and he drops down to the lowest valley. He says, but I'm sorrowful. I know that I'm saved by grace and I know nothing can separate me from the love of God, but I have this heart for the people that I left. And for Paul, the people that he's been saved out of are the nation of Israel. The very people that God chose to be a light to the Gentiles, to the rest of the world. The, the Israelites, the Jews, they have this nation that God has continued to bless. They all started with Abraham, the father of the faith. God spoke to him. Abraham lived in a pagan nation that worshiped idols. There was nothing good about Abraham. God didn't pick him because... You know, Abraham's a pretty good guy. I think I can use him. It wasn't anything like that. He said, Abraham's a pagan. And I, I'm, I'm God, so I get to choose, and I choose Abraham. 
I'm going to reveal myself to him. And through his descendants, I'm going to bless the world. He just picked him. Nothing that Abraham did to earn that. God just chose. But he says here that he's affected not only physically, he's affected physically, spiritually, and mentally. He's got this great sorrow and continual grief in his heart. He says, for I wish, excuse me, verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Now stop there. I know I'm in the middle of a, a sentence, but he's, that what he's just said is a monumental thing. He said, I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ. Do you know what the word accursed means? The original word is anathema, and it's where we get our word damned, eternally separated from God. I wish that I could be eternally separated from God so that my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. He, like, he gets excited and he gets very wordy. But he's saying, I wish that the people that God revealed himself to, the descendants of Abraham, my hope is that they would come to know Jesus Christ personally. Because if you remember anything from the gospel accounts, the tragedy of the whole message is that Jesus Christ came through the seed of the woman, the Virgin Mary, was given by the Holy Spirit, conceived, and was born Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Everything that the Old Testament spoke about that was to come to the, through the nation of Israel was the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And he came to them and they received him not. He told them, I am the Messiah. They asked him. Many people say, well, Jesus never said he was God. Read the Gospels. He said, I am God. I am who I am, is what he said. Which is what he said in the Old Testament. When he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, he says, who shall I tell the Israelites that sent me? And he said, tell them that I am sent you. And that was what he revealed himself as, Yahweh, the ever-present, everlasting God. And so when Jesus is speaking to them, and when Paul's writing here, he's saying that I wish that I myself could be, if it were even possible, I'm saved, but if I could be separated from God for eternity so that they could be saved, I would go that route. I would give up all so that they the ones who God chose to bring Jesus to the world through could be saved. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that I'm not there. I, I love the fact that Jesus saved me, and I don't know why I don't want to give that up. I don't want to give up my position in heaven for the sake of anyone. I love you guys, but it's pretty awesome that God saved me in the first place. I'm not gonna like hand it over to somebody else. And I was thinking about that because I'm like, well, wait a minute. Jesus said, greater love has no man than he laid down his life for his friends. Now, I'm sharing this story because we all know Sherry is not doing so well with cancer. She's got pancreatic cancer. And she's dying. She's in her early 50s, I believe. Don't quote me on that. But because of her 
illness, because of the trial she's going through, and because she's not afraid to die, although she's scared, she doesn't want to experience the pain, she's, she's exhibited to her mom that she's not really afraid to die. She just doesn't want to experience the pain. And her mom watched that, and while she's lived with her, while she's dying, she's come to faith in Jesus Christ because she sees the reality of the hope in her daughter. And I thought about that, I thought, I desire to see my dad be saved. I desire to see him to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Would I pray, Lord, give me cancer if that's what it takes? And the reality is, is though the, my, spirit, my spirit within me says, yes, I would do that. My flesh goes, I want to watch my daughter grow up. I want to continue to have my relationship with my wife. I don't want them to be left alone. And so I, I, I see Paul's heart and I go, Lord, Man, I don't love people as much as Paul does. And I don't love people as much as Jesus does. Change my heart because I know that that's the kind of love that you exhibit to the world. A love that's willing to give up all so that others might be saved. And I love that because the love of Christ is what compelled Paul to have this heart. He says, I wish that I could be separated from God for eternity so that my brethren, the people that I know that are not saved, could be saved. Now we know that that's not how it works. But Paul's heart, his desire, more than anything else, it affected him physically. He desired to see these group, this very group be saved. He says, for Christ, he says, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. And then he describes the Israelites. And I, I have some notes here, so forgive me for a second. He says a few things and he kind of rattles them off quickly, but I don't want to zoom too fast through them. He says this. He says, to whom pertain the adoption? And we know what adoption is because we have children that are born to homes that can't take care of children. And so there are people that come along and they say, hey, either we don't have children or we got another room and we, may, we want to let God use it. And so we're going to adopt this child. We're going to bring them to, into our home. We're going to provide for them. We're going to give them a raising and love them and, and feed them and bring them through school and watch their little league games and, and all of those things. Well, God did that. He was the first one ever to adopt somebody. You see somebody adopting, they, they understand a little bit of the heart of God. Because he adopted this nation, he chose them to make them his own people, a people among whom he would reside. He chose the nation of Israel. The glory... The, the glory of God would reside in the middle of them. This is a reference to the, the Shekinah glory. If you remember the Exodus story, basically they ended up in Egypt and then they became slaves over the 400 years that they were there. And God sent Moses, not Charlton Heston like we all think, but it was Moses. And Moses went into there. He brought the people out, but they went through this long excursion where it seems like they had this back and forth like negotiation. Moses went in with a word from God and he said, hey, if, unless you let my people go, this plague's going to happen. And he sent, he made the river Nile into blood. He sent frogs. He sent hailstones. He sent all these different plagues in order to get the Pharaoh to let him go. Hey, if you mess with my people, I'm going to do this. And then he did it. And it said over and over again that Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. The Lord warns us sometimes and we have the ability to either harden our heart against him or say, okay, I'll give. 
And what the Pharaoh did was he hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. We'll get to that in a minute. But then they finally get to leave Egypt. And as they're leaving Egypt, the Lord led them. They built a tabernacle. But while they were going through the wilderness, the Lord led them with a physical revealing of himself called the Shekinah glory. It was his very presence in the middle of their camp. What he did was he revealed himself in a pillar of fire by day, by night, to kind of a nightlight for the children, you know. And then he revealed himself through a pillar of cloud by day. It shielded them in the desert from all of the sun. He protected them. And he also led them. If the pillar started moving, they picked up camp and they moved on. They kind of traveled through the wilderness. He led them every way, step along the way. And he also provided manna for them. So not only did they have the adoption, but they also saw the glory of God. They saw a physical representation of the Lord. And you think, well, if they saw a physical representation, then why would they ever back away from that? But they forgot, like we often do. God does something amazing, and then we forget about it, and we go back to our old ways. But then he says, uh, the glory, the covenants, the promises that he made, the giving of the law, the service of God. There was a tribe in Israel called the Levites, and they were actually given the service of God. And the idea was when they would have worship, there was this whole group of people that would set up the tables, chairs, and would bring in the incense and would make the showbread and would kill the animals they were going to sacrifice. And they would, when the pillar of cloud would move, the same group would pick up all the implements and put down the tent and they would fold it up. They'd carry the Ark of the Covenant and they would go across the desert. They were, they, they were a group of people that God just made servants. One of the tribes, one of the sons of Jacob. So they were given the very service of God. They were the basically the doorkeepers to the, the tabernacle of the Lord. And they were given the promises. Of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. So not only that, but then after all of that stuff in the wilderness, delivered into the promised land, building this temple and this physical kingdom, God said, I'm going to send to you the Messiah. And he sent through the seed of the Virgin Mary and conceived of the Holy Spirit, he sent Jesus Christ, a very messianic Christ, a king. And of course, they read it and they thought, well, God's going to send to us a king, a deliverer, someone who's going to, like Moses, deliver us out of the bondage at the time when Jesus came, they were under the bondage of Rome. They were ruled over by the kingdom of Rome. And so they thought, man, God's going to send us a king. We're no longer going to be overtaxed. We're no longer going to have to deal with these people making us do things we don't want to do. We can be our own nation again. And the Lord said, first, I'm going to send you Jesus and he's going to deal with your sins. Because though the nation of Israel had been given the law, which was basically a list of commandments that said, do these things, this is the things that people do that God wants to hang out with. This is what will, this is the attributes of a righteous character and a person that God's okay with fellowshipping with because God can't be in the presence of sin. But instead of realizing that that list of requirements was meant to show them that they were sinful and they needed a savior, they started doing them to show everybody else, hey, look how righteous we are. They became self-righteous. And so 
God revealed himself to them and they took it for granted. But Paul's desire is that they would be saved. So, verse 6, he says, But it's not the word of God, excuse me, it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But, he says, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Do you know that? There are many families that are godly families and they have children. Lucy's going to be one of these kids. She's going to be raised in a Christian home. We're going to do all that we can to share with her Jesus. And she could one day go astray. And she could one day tell her friends, well, of course I'm saved. I, my parents are Christians. And you, we all know somebody that may have acted that way before. But the reality is, he says here about these people of Israel, God chose Abraham. Abraham walked by faith. It pleased God. And because he walked by faith, it was accounted to Abraham as righteousness. Now we all know, if you've read the story of Abraham, that he was a sinful man. He had his own quirks. He messed up. He lied to Pharaoh. He lied to a king and said, well, this is my sister. And it was really his wife in order that he would be able to save his life without he'd be killed. Because his wife, he says, was beautiful. And so he lied about it. And, and many other times, Abraham made mistakes. We're going to look at one where basically Abraham... And Sarah were told by God, in Isaac, your seed shall be blessed. I'm going to give you many descendants. Well, Abraham and Sarah were nearing 100 years old. And they said, well, you know, God promised us that he would give us a child, but we haven't had one yet, and we're getting kind of old. Maybe we need to help God out. And we oftentimes think that God promised this, but maybe he meant this. So they did something that was culturally acceptable. Uh, Sarah gave her handmaiden to Abraham and said, hey, lay with her. We'll have a child. We'll call it our own. She'll sit on my knees while she's giving birth. And then that'll be my son. And then later, Abraham was told by the Lord, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is verse eight. Those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. See, God promised. And when God promises, he fulfills it. But sometimes we think we need to help, and what we do is we end up doing something in the flesh. We try to do it on our own means. We say, well, God, you promised this, but I'll help you out. And what we do is we end up creating problems. And if you know anything about the history of Israel and the Muslims, is that Ishmael was a son of Abraham, and God blessed him because he was a child or a descendant of Abraham. But he wasn't the child that God promised to give Abraham. Because when they were almost 100 years old, 10 to 12 years after Ishmael was born, God came to them and said, hey, I'm going to be here next year and you're going to have a son. And they were almost 100. And so Sarah laughed. And God said, why did you laugh, Sarah? And she said, I didn't laugh. And he said, yes, you did. And then a year later, they had a son, which is crazy because it was impossible for someone that old to have children apart from the Lord. So the Lord gave them a son. It was Isaac. And Isaac was named Laughter because when they were told they would have Isaac, Sarah laughed. So that's what they named him. But through Isaac, Isaac married Rebekah. And through Rebekah came Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob, his name eventually becomes Israel. Jacob means heel catcher. And I always laugh at Jacob Law when he's here. I'm like, hey, your name's heel catcher. 
It means you're a swindler. You're a shifty character. You're always trying to scheme. Of course, I always mess with Jacob because, you know, that's what you do. You mess with young boys. But, you know, I was just telling him, hey, are you a heel catcher? You know, I, I am. Maybe my name's not Jacob, but there are times, especially in my younger life, where I was a, I was a trickster. I would deceive people to get my own way. And so it was the child of promise that God was going to bless and fulfill his promise to give Abraham descendants as many as the sand on the seashore. And so verse 10, verse 9 rather, for this is the word of promise. And this is the promise that God made to Abraham. He said, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, verse 10, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, that being Isaac, the son, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. And it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now that's kind of a hard verse because we say, well, God so loved the entire world, why would he hate anybody? Well, Jesus had said to his disciples, he said, unless you hate your mother and father, in comparison to your love for me, you shall have no part in my kingdom. Now that seems contrary because he also tells uh, children, obey your parents in the Lord. So wait a minute, what, I'm supposed to hate my parents? No. In comparison to your love for the Lord, it should look like you hate your parents. You shouldn't hate your parents. But in comparison to those two loves, you should love the Lord so much that it looks like in your relationship with your parents, it's kind of a, a second-rate love, if that makes any sense. And so, you know, he's saying here that these children of promise, God chose. And that's the theme. God chooses based on his sovereign will. He knows things ahead of time, but he chooses based on his choice. God's made us like him. He's given us the ability to choose. But God is the one who chooses us before we're ever born. That blows me away because he chose Jacob, who was the second child born to Isaac and Rebekah, right? Which is no big deal to us because we're like, oh, he just chose the second born. You know, I was the second born. I wasn't. I was the first born. But if my brother would have been blessed above me, I'd be a little bummed. But it doesn't work like that in our society. See, the firstborn in that society would get the inheritance, and then the secondborn would get whatever's left, and the thirdborn, who cares? So the first child born would be the heir. If you're in a kingly family, if you're the firstborn, you are the, you're the descendant to the throne, you're, or you're the one that will ascend to the throne. You'll be given power and rulership, and you'll be given all the finances and all that stuff. So for the Lord to say, hey, the older is going to serve the younger. He's going to be a servant to the secondborn. That's weird. You know, it's not what they would normally do, but it was God's choosing. God said, this is what's going to happen. And it's funny because many people struggle with this verse that says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I've hated. How can the Lord say that about Esau? You know, Esau, he was hated by the Lord. But the funny thing is, is the, the better question is, how could God love Jacob at all? Jacob was not a catch. He was not a good guy. He was a schemer. Even at his birth, here's what happened. There's twins in the womb. They're wrestling against each other. 
And then on the day of birth, here's what happened. Esau stuck his foot out. He was the first one to come out of the womb, technically. And so they would always tie a thread or something around that limb. This one won. He's the firstborn if they had twins. Well, after that, it says that a hand came out, pulled the other leg in, the heel. Jacob did that. He, that's why they named him Jacob. He was like, no, I'm going to be first. He's the one in the basketball game that throws all the elbows. You know, he's like, hey, get out of my way. I'm going to, you know, whatever. But so Jacob basically pulls him back in and then he comes out first. Although they call Esau the older because he was a couple seconds older. And so even then, Jacob was known as a heel catcher. He was always trying to get his way. He didn't care what he had to do. He would lie. He would steal. He would do whatever he had to basically gain the favor of whoever he was working with. And later we see that more and more in his life, even to the point where he marries, he, he's trying to get married, and, he, and the, the guy that gives his daughter to him gives the other daughter. He doesn't give Rebecca first. He gives Leah. And so Jacob the heel catcher was also schemed against by his uncle. And so it's a whole crazy story, and it's amazing to me who God chooses to use. But it's comforting to me. And we'll end on this because many times we look at God and we say, you know, God, you know, why did you, why did you choose to use this guy? Why did you choose to use that guy? And the reality is, is that it's based upon his wisdom. His ways are higher than our ways. If you're here this morning, God shows you He's spoken to your life. It's not an accident. It's not based on you earning it or being a good character. Uh, he might have chose you and you're, you're the biggest liar in any of your group of friends. He might have chose you and you were the worst of the worst. You're in good company. Jacob was that way. You're in good company. David, King David was that way. You're in good company. I was that way. God doesn't save those who can save themselves. He saves those who can't who recognize their own spiritual poverty. We're in good company. And so next week we'll look at that. But the point is, is that God chose this nation to bring this Messiah who would be the savior of the world. And he brought this Jesus through this group of people that when Jesus came, they didn't even believe in him. But the beautiful thing about that is because of their unbelief, salvation was offered to the Gentiles. That's you and I. We might have some Jewish roots, but most of us are mainly Gentile. And he's chosen to pick you and I. And I'm going to rush ahead, but in uh, verse 25, he says, as the prophet Hosea says, I will call them my people who were not my people. And I will call her beloved who was not beloved. He says, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. So my question to you this morning is, do you recognize that God chose you? And do you recognize that he did it despite the fact that his own people rejected him? Many times we kind of look at the Jews and many of them are, are thought of less because they didn't believe. But I, for one, am very glad that they didn't believe so that I could be saved. Because the Jews rejected him, he went out to the Gentiles. He sent... Paul, outside of the nation of Israel. And though there were 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost, um, when the persecution started, and all the Jewish leaders started persecuting the church, they spread to all the other nations around them, and they took with them the hope of Jesus Christ. And so, God went through great 
pains, not only to send his only son on your behalf, but also to continue to share that message. Many people have risked their lives to share the hope that's in Christ with this world. And we are among that same number who, though we may not be risking our lives, we might risk our popularity, we might risk our, uh, our, uh, our favor with people that disagree with us, but the reality is, is that even though we may go through hard times, God's given us a message of hope to share with people until we go to be with Him. And so, let's pray. Father, um, it blows me away that before I was born, that you chose me. And it blows me away that uh, among the people of the world, that it's not the mighty, it's not the proud, it's not the, uh, the perfect that are called, but it's sinners, people that recognize their own spiritual poverty that you offer salvation to. No doubt you've offered salvation to the entire world, but there are very few who actually receive it and accept it. And so, Lord, I thank you for allowing things in my life to get so bad and bringing me so low, making me humble, so that I was soft enough to realize that you care for me more than anybody on earth and that nothing can separate me from your love. And my one need is that I need to come to you with my need and be real. And so, Lord, this morning, I just pray that you would give us the ability, as we go throughout this week, to be real with you, to do all that we can to grow closer to you, to do all that we can to be real and and repentant before you, and to just bask in your great love for us. Thank you for providing a way that we could be saved. Thank you for even putting up with people that rejected you. Lord, there were many years that I was just like the Israelites and rejected your love for me. But I thank you that you continued to hound me anyway. I thank you that you continued to show your love even when I was at war against you. I pray that you would help me to live a life that's worthy of the salvation and the sacrifice you made for my life. Thank you for this group this morning. I pray you bless them, bless their families, Lord, and give us the grace to continue on trusting you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's end with a song.